0: 2 corinthians 8 starting at verse 1 and now brothers and sisters we want you to know about the grace that god has given the macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity for i testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do, do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honour the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the church and an honour to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, so that the churches can see it.
1: Well, please do keep uh, that passage open to Corinthians uh, chapter 8 as we look at it uh, together. I want you to imagine uh, that you have uh, received a letter uh, from an old friend. Uh, You haven't seen this friend for a long period of time, uh, but the friend means a lot to you. You you care about what they think. In fact, uh, they have been an important person uh, in your life. Uh, And so this letter arrives, uh, and you want to know what's happening. You want to know uh, the latest news, uh, but you also want to know what they think of you, particularly because actually the last time you were in touch, things weren't quite right. Uh, You'd said something that wasn't quite right, you'd done something that wasn't quite right, Uh, they disapproved of it, Uh, and now you really want to be right uh, with this individual. Uh, And you open the letter, and you read the letter, and the letter starts off with lots of news, uh, starts off with some explanation, uh, clearing up some misunderstandings perhaps uh, about what they've been up to, Uh, and and gradually as it gets more and more intimate, it's clear uh, that the person who wrote this letter, your friend, regards you more positively than they did before. Uh, And you are full of joy at the thought uh, that they actually really approve of what you are doing and how you are doing it. And you feel good about it. Uh, And then you turn the page. Uh, And on the next page, it starts by essentially saying, give us some money. What would that that make you think? I I guess there are a variety of reactions when uh, people ask us uh, for money. It may be that you've already switched off. The idea of being asked for money is something that just switches off, partly perhaps because you think, well, I haven't got any, uh, so it's not for me. Uh, Or or maybe you're uh, slightly embarrassed in a sort of British sort of way that we don't really like talking about money. We know it's important. We'd like to have more of it. Uh, but we don't actually talk about it, do we? So if somebody actually starts saying in a letter, please give me some money, uh, that would uh, would embarrass us. So we uh, sort of just sort of turn a bit red uh, and hope the conversation stops quickly, perhaps jumping forward a couple of pages uh, over that bit. Perhaps our reaction is, well, we sort of recognise it has to be done. You know, we, we go to an event, uh, and we know there'll be sort of five or ten minutes in the middle of it where they sort of say, please give us some money, and you sort of get over that bit and have a good time. You sort of know that that's one of the reasons why you're there. You know it's going to happen. You have to sort of endure it. It's sort of important. It's sort of polite, that sort of thing. But it's not something you enjoy. Or perhaps your reaction is, is more visceral. Perhaps your reaction is just cynical. Perhaps in reading this letter from your friend, you think, well, actually, I don't believe all the nice stuff that's just said about me, because all that they wanted to do was get me in a good mood to ask me for money. And so often, of course, in the world, we see that. We see people uh, sucking us in to the argument and then asking us for money. Uh, Sadly, we see it in the church. Uh, All of us will be able to imagine, perhaps, uh, those stereotyped, uh, usually American Uh, people who uh, use the church uh, as a reason to ask for lots of money. But as you read uh, think about this letter from your friend, uh, now let's turn to 2 Corinthians 8. Because it sort of strikes me that that's exactly what happens here. Uh, That Paul has spent uh, a few chapters explaining what he's been doing. Uh, He now uh, turns perhaps slightly more intimately. And in chapter 7, as we saw last week if we were here, uh, we saw that actually he's really pleased with them. So in chapter 7, verse 7, my joy was greater than ever. Verse 13, by all this we are encouraged. And then in verse 16, I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. You feel good, don't you? If you're the Corinthians, you know you've messed up in the past. You know you've got things wrong. You know there are still things we need to sort out. But now we're in a good place. And then Paul turns the page, as it were, and says, please give me some money. Because that's what chapter 8 says. Let's not be uh, in any doubt about it. Paul is telling them, asking them to give him some money. And it seems incongruous, uh, so incongruous that actually uh, quite a few commentators uh, actually sort of suggest that perhaps chapter 8 and 9 uh, don't really belong. We should jump from chapter 7 to chapter 10. It's, it's such a, a, a disjointed jump, a leap from one thing to another that we should even ignore uh, chapter 8 and 9. Perhaps Paul didn't even write it. It just doesn't seem quite Right. But what I want to suggest to you this evening is our attitude to money uh, so often is deeply unbiblical. So that if we understand chapter 8, we would see it as entirely natural uh, for Paul to talk about money uh, in this way. For Paul, it seems entirely natural, perhaps for two reasons. One, because there is a need. Paul needs to raise some money to do the work that God has called him uh, to do. And secondly, there should be no area of our lives, there should be no area of the Christian life uh, that doesn't come under the call of the gospel. So we shouldn't ignore money in the context of church. And Paul naturally, and it is natural because he talks a little bit about Titus in chapter 7 and then talks through about what Titus is doing in chapter 8. It is a natural flow. Paul wants the Corinthians to give money. So I hope uh, you haven't switched off already. Uh, I hope you're not embarrassed. Uh, I certainly hope you're not cynical. Uh, As we turn to 2 Corinthians 8 together, shall we pray? Father, help us to think about how and what we give. Father, help us to think about that in terms of money, but to understand that in a wider context as we understand Paul's vision for the Corinthians, for the church, and his love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and his understanding of your great love for him, for the Corinthians, and for us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So we're just looking at 2 Corinthians 8, and we've got two principles, two examples and two bits of practical uh, advice. So let's start with the two principles. Uh, The first principle is that giving is a gift. Giving is a gift. So if you look at uh, chapter 8 and verse 1, immediately Paul wants to talk about the Macedonian churches. We'll come back to those. Uh, But he wants uh, the readers to know that what the Macedonian church has been doing has been about grace. There in verse 1, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. It's really important to get this the right way round. In 2 Corinthians 8, grace leads to giving. That's not to say that giving isn't good for the people, that good things will come uh, if we give, Uh, but this is certainly not what's sometimes called a prosperity gospel. The idea uh, that good things will come to us uh, in a prosperous way, and the goal of giving is to bring more money in. That's a big mistake uh, that many churches have made. That's not the principle here. The principle, Paul, is that grace leads to giving. So the first thing is it's a gift. It's what God has given the Macedonian churches in verse 1. You see it again in verse 6. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. It's there in verse 7. It talks actually in verse 7, if you look at it, about other gifts Since you excel in everything, what's to compliment the Corinthians and all the things that they're doing uh, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you? Just the same sort of thing. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. Let's just pause there and think about that. Does that even remotely connect with the language that we use as Christians in the church? Do we, even when we know somebody has been generous Talk about that in the same way that we might talk uh, about a gift of preaching, the same way that we might talk uh, about a gift of hospitality, whatever it might be. We probably don't because we're uncomfortable about thinking about money in the same way. And yet for Paul, this is a gift uh, that is exactly uh, the same sort of thing. So Corinthians, you're good at this. You're really good at this faith, this speech, this knowledge, this earnestness, this love. Make sure that you excel in giving uh, as well and look at verse 8 I'm not commanding you but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others is Paul honestly saying that our giving is a reflection of whether we're a Christian or not well, it seems to be what he's saying isn't it the sincerity of your love is it real And just in case you're not sure about that, uh, in verse 24, uh, at the end of the chapter, says exactly the same thing. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love. Let's pause there to think about ourselves. Is our giving proof of the sincerity of our faith? Is our giving proof of the work that God has done in us? Is our giving proof that God's grace is in us? Is it the natural outpouring uh, of what we have uh, from God? And it seems so countercultural. Uh, as I've looked at this passage this week, I, I haven't even really been sure how to handle it because it's so countercultural. It seems to me in the way that we talk about money in church, and yet for Paul, it's natural. So that's the first principle: giving uh, is a gift. Uh, the second principle is it's how you give, not what you give. Uh, that matters Uh, perhaps that's a a relief to you as you're suddenly thinking you're going to leave after the service and empty your bank account in order to prove the fact you're a Christian that's not exactly what Paul is saying Uh, Paul is challenging us though uh, to think about how we give and of course that has an impact on what we give look at verse 8 he wants to make it very clear in this passage that it is not about him commanding them uh, to do something Really important principle. Now elsewhere, and indeed a little bit in this passage, Paul does give instruction about what to do in the area of giving. In 1 Corinthians 16, uh, he gives some clear instruction and there's a little bit of instruction later on as we'll see. But Paul really wants to get the point across in this particular context. This is not about me telling you what to do. It is about you doing it yourself. So look at verse 12. Verse 12. For if the willingness is there... The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Remember that, uh, uh, that parable uh, in Mark's Gospel. Uh, you can turn to, if you like, in Mark uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 42 to, uh, 41 to 42. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in a two very small copper coins, worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had uh, to live on. So in verse 12, it is not about the amount that you give. It is about the desire to give. If you want to give, says Paul, in verse 12, The gift is acceptable according to what one has. So, of course, some people will have a greater capacity than others to give. Uh, Others will have very little to give. It might be a real struggle, perhaps particularly at this moment in time. It might be a real struggle to give. But this passage still speaks to us. Because Paul is saying it is not about how much you give. But about whether you want to. Why do you give? It's about achieving fairness and equality. It's about working for the benefit of others. Uh, Verse 13, um, it's not a burden. We don't want you to go away, says Paul, feeling burdened by what you have to give. Verse 13, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. We want you to want to give, says Paul, uh, that others uh, will benefit. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need. At this moment, you have a lot. Please give. Please give. So that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. And it might be another occasion where they have got a lot and you're in need. And then they should give. The goal is equality. And we could spend a lot of time talking about what that might mean. But look there in verse 15. It refers back to that moment in Exodus. uh, The manna which is given by God from heaven. uh, And the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. The principle in Exodus, Exodus chapter 16 and verse 18, the principle is that God's grace is sufficient. And that's brought out by Paul here as he's talking about the giving of money. Again, that link between God's gracious provision uh, of manna and our responsibility to do with what we have been given, what God would want us uh, to do. So two principles for us. Giving is a gift. And it's how we give, not what we give, uh, that matters. Think about the last time you gave perhaps a substantial amount of money to something. How did you give it? What were your thoughts. What was the thought process? Perhaps there was no thought process at all. One of the dangers uh, of the world in which we live today is perhaps we make a decision and money just goes out of our bank account to something on every monthly basis. We don't even think about it at all. Perhaps it's just indifference. Perhaps we did it out of duty. We sort of felt we ought to. Uh, Perhaps we did it out of a sense of guilt because the pressure was on us. We knew we had it. We ought to do it Uh, and we did not really want to do it at all. Perhaps the last time we gave was a joyful thing, that we enjoyed giving money. But again, I would challenge us, certainly challenge myself, what's that joy come from? Often we're happy to give money because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Often, perhaps, we're happy to give money, perhaps we're slightly better than that. Uh, We're not the sort of people that want to flaunt the fact that we've given money, but so often that is the case, that we feel a a sense of self-satisfaction, that we have done some good. But perhaps we enjoy seeing the impact of that giving, and that's, of course, a healthy thing. But it's healthier still, says Paul, if our giving comes from the joy, the grace that God has given us. So that our joy in giving is not just about the people we give it to, but the God from whom we have received it. So let's think about the two examples Paul uses for us to help us think about it. The first example is the Macedonians uh, in uh, those first few verses. And let's just think about these Macedonians uh, in terms of what their sort of attitude is. What's their condition? What's the circumstance in which they're giving money? And it's remarkable In verse 2, they're giving money in the midst of a very severe trial. While they are suffering, they are giving. And again, that's counterintuitive for us, isn't it? That we would usually think if we're really struggling, the last thing we should be expected to do uh, is give. We're the ones that should be given to. We're the ones who need the help. But in the midst of a very severe trial. Now, it's not that they were rich during that trial look at again in the midst of very severe trial their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty so the macedonians gave while they were suffering and while they were poor it's pretty hard hitting for us we can't get away with this paul's not going to let us off if we're suffering paul would still think we should be giving if we're really poor paul still thinks we should be giving and note the Macedonians don't just give, they give with overflowing joy and rich generosity, verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, their are overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They're remarkable people. And why is it that they are giving? It's because the grace of God has been given to those churches, verse 1. Look how much they want to give. End of verse three. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in his service to the Lord's people. Wonder how many of us—I certainly haven't—do we run up to people asking them, "Please, please, please, let me give to you. Please, let me give to the uh, the churches." We sort of do it dutifully, maybe. We sort of do it when we're persuaded but we like the Macedonians who take a positive joy in looking for an opportunity uh, to give. They plead with Paul for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. I think it's a remarkable verse that challenges us in so many ways about what we think about our own possessions, what we think about what we should be doing. Verse 5, and they do it beyond Paul's expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So they're God-centered, they're God-centered in the way they give. First of all to the Lord. So their first thought is God. But they're mission-centered too. They want to give to this particular cause, sharing in this service uh, to the Lord's people at the end of verse 4. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God, to us. Paul wasn't expecting it. Entirely on their own, it says. The Macedonian people. Now, you may have come across the work of uh, a theologian uh, and pastor called John Piper. who's uh, minister for many years in Minneapolis, uh, written many books. Um, and one of his, probably his most famous book, uh, was called Desiring God. Uh, and it's a book that sort of like promoted this sort of theory, which is slightly controversial, theologically in some ways, uh, called Christian Hedonism. And it takes the uh, opening phrase of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, what is the chief end of man, is the question. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. I once learned uh, some of it off my heart, so I can still remember question one. I can't remember much more. There's about 100 questions but John Piper changes the answer to that question, which is obviously a deeply heretical thing to do, to change something that the reformers thought about. Um, but he said, he said it's not quite right. What is the chief end of man? John Piper says the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And the idea uh, is that we are at our best, we're at our most fulfilled, we're at what we were meant to be if we are enjoying God Uh, And for John Piper, joy is at the heart uh, of a true expression uh, of the Christian faith. And actually, he uses uh, 2 Corinthians 8 as one of his core passages to talk about this idea. Because he says what the Macedonians do in those opening verses of 2 Corinthians 8 is precisely what he's talking about. They have understood, appreciated, and received the grace of God to such a degree that they overflow in joy in giving to help the needs of others. Uh, And one quotation from John Piper is this, worth thinking about. Love, says John Piper, love is the overflow of joy in God, which meets the needs of others. So we have experienced the grace of God in us, such that it overflows out uh, in love, and that love meets the needs of others. And of course, in this context, that's financial. Uh, But it doesn't just need uh, to be financial. So do we love, says Paul, verse 8. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love, verse 24. Therefore show these men the proof of your love. It isn't about analysing the bank account and working about how much we can give. It's a natural response of the grace of God in us that we should love others by giving. But that's not the best example, of course. The second example is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in verse 9. Now, verse 9 is a famous verse. Uh, It's a verse that you probably, uh, if you're used to going to church, you might have come across it. Uh, We sang it in uh, a a hymn uh, earlier. Uh, It's a verse that we sort of might uh, pick up at Christmas. It's a very Christmassy verse. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You could argue it's one of those really top-quality um, sort of phrases that Paul would be really proud of. I want you to imagine uh, if uh, Keir Starmer, uh, sorry, Sir Keir Starmer, uh, in preparation for next year's uh, general election, or just afterwards, uh, they're just uh, sitting around the table with his PR guys, uh, and they're sort of like looking for the sort of core phrase that's going to win the election. They just want to get it all down, all their wonderful ideas. They want to get them all down into one sort of, gritty sort of phrase It will be it. And you sort of come up with it. Uh, and everyone around the table recognizes this is the key phrase. Where are we going to put it? Are we going to put it on the front of our manifesto? Or are we going to put it in the opening paragraph of the conference speech? Or the launch of that manifesto? Or is it going to be on that really expensive advert? Or are we going to tuck it away in the middle of the fundraising letter? It's an odd place to have it. And it's quite isolated if you look at it. Uh, Please give us some money. Please give us some money. And in the middle, this wonderful peon of praise, theological, the heights of Paul talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. For us, it might seem a little bit out of place and in Congress, but not for Paul. Because right at the heart of this idea of giving is an understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So it is the example to us of giving. And again, it's about grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus was rich. Now let's think about what that means for a moment. And we can think about Philippians 2, read that passage, uh, to, to pick up the idea much more. That Jesus was in very nature God, with God, in glory. And yet he became poor. And what's that mean? Well, to become poor, of course, means in itself to become human, to lower himself from the heights of heaven, to become a baby in a manger. You know, at the heart of the Christian faith is a remarkable thing, that God becomes man. And we know that as Christians, but let's just pause and think about it this evening, of what it means. Jesus Christ becomes man a baby. But of course that poverty uh, is so much more than that, because Jesus doesn't just come to be born, but he comes to die. let just think from Philippians 2. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. You'd think that'd be enough. The remarkable thought that God would lower himself to spend time on earth, to understand us, to care about us. But there's so much more. Being found in appearances of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what are the consequences? So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What we receive as a result of Jesus dying on the cross, what we receive as a result of Jesus taking upon himself our sin, what we receive in terms of the grace that comes to us that we can have a relationship with God again is remarkable. But I think the key thing about verse 9 is the first three words. For you know. And I guess this might not make sense this evening if we're not a Christian. It might seem odd Uh, to be going on in the way that we are about how money relates to this. But Paul is writing to Christians. And he says, for you know about the Lord Jesus. You know that Jesus came from heaven to earth. You know that Jesus went to death on a cross. And you know what you have received from that. So what's the responsibility? The responsibility is to give. So two principles, two examples. uh, And finally, just two practical bits of help for us. Paul is very practical in this passage. He's practical on an individual level. Uh, look at verse uh, 10 and verse 11. Uh, and this is, this, is, this is absolutely right at the heart of what we need. How often have we been the sort of person uh, at the end of verse 10 uh, that likes the idea of giving, has the desire, and even gets on with it to start with. Last year you were the first not only to give. And what's Paul's advice? In verse 11, now finish it. So that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. What a great principle. How many times, not just about money, how many times in the Christian life have we started things that we think are good? Perhaps we've listened to a sermon, perhaps we've read a book, perhaps we've read the Bible, perhaps we've prayed, perhaps we've been encouraged by another Christian to start something. A Bible reading plan, a prayer triplet, whatever it might be. But a year on, we haven't finished it. And what Paul says is be persistent, be determined, have a goal, be goal-oriented, to use a modern sort of business phrase. And he gives great advice at the end of 1 Corinthians uh, in terms of just simply on the first day of every week, he says, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up. Great principles about how uh, to give. So do it, says Paul. Want to do it and make sure you keep at it complete that goal secondly take it seriously money is a serious thing and i love verse 16 to 24 we haven't got time to to look at it in depth but i love it because it's got so much practical detail again in verse 16 to 24 paul essentially says i'm going to look after this money it's it's important now, we can look through the New Testament. We can see what this money is for. This money is for the poor uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, it's talked about at the end of Romans 15. Uh, it's referred to in Galatians 2. Uh, that part of the agreement between uh, the church in Jerusalem and Paul as he takes the message to the Gentiles uh, is that he should remember to uh, collect money for the poor. And he says in Galatians 2, the very thing we were eager to do. But when you're giving people lots of money, you want to be sure... Uh, that it is going to the right place, don't we? It is right to be thoughtful uh, about that. If you look at verse uh, 21, interestingly, not only in the eyes of the Lord, second half verse 21, but also in the eyes of man. So actually when money is given, it needs to be given in a way that's authentic, it's a way that's well organized, and it's a way that's safe. And this passage is full of that. It's authorized by the churches, It's accountable. Uh, It's not just Paul. It's not just Titus. Verse 18. We're sending along with the brother who's praised by all the churches. Uh, And uh, in verse 22, in addition, we're sending with them our brother. So there's there's more than one person coming to get this money. So you don't need to worry about this money being given to somebody and then running off with it. This is authentic gospel work. We need to be sensible and serious about money money can be abused money can be abused by those in power uh, and we've seen that so many times sadly uh, in the modern church across the world watching a documentary a couple of weeks ago about seeing that happen in one particular set of churches and it's really sad but if we were biblical in the sense that paul tells us here to be we would get it right authorized accountable but just finally never forgetting the gospel Isn't it interesting that even in the midst of this fundraising exercise, Paul says in verse 18, we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. Gospel giving. The same thing. Going back to verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, we want to know, we want you to know about the grace that God has given and this particular example is the Macedonian church giving. Uh, in my job, I have uh, um, the misfortune or fortune of having to do some fundraising, uh, and I will always remember uh, watching one thing. We put a big um, uh, board up, um, actually listing all the donors to a particular project, uh, and some people who donated to that had given a huge amount of money, uh, and some had given a very small amount of money. And I remember one family uh, who were very much not... A wealthy family. In fact, they were recipients uh, of the benefit of the charity. Uh, I work at a school uh, and they were recipients of a bursary place. They had very little money but they absolutely loved giving a little bit to that cause and it was so heartening talking to them uh, on the occasion where we dedicated the building for which the money had been raised Uh, and I said to them, it's so good to have you here and they said, it was such a privilege. We're sorry we couldn't give more. We gave just a little bit because we love this place so much and we love what it has done for our son and we love what it has done for our family. They gave hardly anything. And as I was reading this passage, that little moment came to mind as I just talked to them and saw joy overflowing from them because of something that had been given to them, which led them to giving not a huge amount of money, but giving in the way that Paul wants us to give. And that was because they had been the recipients uh, of a funded place at a school. What have we been recipients of? Much, much more. And yet I'm not sure that the joy of our giving is the same as that family. So that's a challenge uh, this evening. Paul wants it not to be a command, but wants to test the sincerity of our love. Do we really understand the grace of God?